All right, so uh, just to reorient us again uh, into our study, I'd like to just quickly go back and recap uh, where we've been so far. So chapter one, if you'll recall, was uh, what is conscience? And in that chapter, uh, the primary points that I wanted to emphasize here, to be human is to have a conscience. Uh, If you are a human breathing uh, living soul, you have a conscience. A conscience is, is uh, reflective of the moral aspect of God's image, and so it's given to us by God. Um, it feels like a third party. It feels independent, so it is part of us, part of our being, but its, uh, its input into our minds is almost as though it were a third party, and um, also it's, it's, uh, it doesn't do gray areas well. So it's a black and white, um, as the authors put it, it wants to be an on-off switch, not a dimmer. Uh, So it's it's not a gray area kind of thing. It's a right, wrong, you're guilty, you're not guilty uh, kind of of input into our brain. Uh, It's for you and you only. I really wanted to emphasize this point because, especially because of what we'll be discussing in the second half of chapter four, it's really important. They give us the acronym MYOC, Mind Your Own Conscience. And so this is, this is for our uh, use only, and we can instruct and help and guide other people, but we should never try to bind the conscience of our brothers and sisters on secondary issues and third-tier issues. And we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit more as we get into the second half of chapter four. Uh, also, no two people have the same conscience, and no one person's conscience perfectly matches God's holy will. So that's important to remember too. We always have room to grow in our own understanding of of God's will for us and therefore sharpening our conscience or calibrating our conscience as the uh, language of chapter four uses. So, and no two people's conscience match. If you look at a diagram at the top of page 28, that's really a helpful uh, tool and you'll see there that Annie's conscience and Bill's conscience overlap on some like four issues, but Bill's conscience has a whole string of issues that are not part of Annie's conscience, and Annie has one that's not part of Bill's, and neither of them are catching P. P is the only one that neither of them have that's part of God's will. So that, of course, is the standard. That's the truth that we all should be striving for. Uh, hopefully, as Annie and Bill mature, they'll catch P one day. Um, so, and then the final two principles of chapter one that I also wanted to emphasize, God is Lord of the conscience is number one. God is the Lord of the conscience. And so therefore, if we see something in the word where our conscience is not aligned correctly, we must submit to the word. God is Lord of the conscience. And number two, always obey it. Um, That's the general rule that we saw at the beginning of chapter 4. Generally, always obey your conscience. Um, Then chapter 2 is the biblical definition for conscience. And so chapter 2, I'm not going to go through all of that, but that if you're still struggling with what the conscience is from a biblical perspective, go back and read chapter 2 because it's just full of scriptures which lay out uh, what the conscience is, the role of the conscience, and how to respond to it. Chapter 3 was what do we do when our conscience condemns us? So if we have a biting conscience, um, it can be one of two things. It can be rightly condemning us. It can be falsely condemning us. The prescription for either is really the same thing. It's the gospel. Uh, So if it's rightly condemning us, then we need to agree with Christ. We need to repent and trust in his righteousness alone. If it's falsely condemning us, it's the gospel. We need to go back and remember There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the gospel is the response to our biting consciences, whether it's rightly or falsely condemning us. Chapter 4, Greg uh, taught the first half of this chapter last Sunday, and uh, this is on how to calibrate our conscience. And so uh, if you remember from last week, I thought it was very helpful Uh, Greg used the example of instrumentation from his perspective as an engineer and how instruments need a standard. Uh, He he, uh, set a standard with a higher level of accuracy than what the instrument that we're calibrating is. 
Uh, it's very helpful. Obviously, the standard is the word of God for our consciences, much higher degree of accuracy, and we need to align our consciences over time uh, to that standard. Uh, the general rule to follow, again, generally always follow your conscience. And then we should be careful to discern between sinning against our conscience and calibrating our conscience. Those two things can feel very similar. Can anyone remember or can anyone tell me, uh, share with us how those two things can feel similar? Calibrating our conscience and sinning against our conscience. Yes, Philip. That's good. Anyone else have anything to add to that? So if you look at the bottom of page 64, he gives us uh, the, first, the first definition there. You are sinning against your conscience. It comes down to the word believe, what you believe. So you are sinning against your conscience. When you believe your conscience is speaking correctly, and yet you refuse to listen to it. Emphasis on you believe. And then if you look down the next uh, paragraph, number two, you are calibrating your conscience when Christ, the Lord of your conscience, teaches you through his scripture that your conscience has been incorrectly warning you about a particular matter. So you decide to no longer listen to your conscience on that one matter. So after you've informed your conscience from the word, from truth outside the word, secondarily, and then you are convinced, you believe that your conscience has been falsely guiding you on that particular area, and you change it. So the first time, uh, and they use the example, I don't know, yeah, it's in this paragraph. When you, um, so uh, let's see, halfway down, when you drink your first root beer after being completely convinced that root beer is okay, your conscience may warn you. So if you're worried about root beer and you're, you're convinced that root beer is not good for you, and then at some point down the road you drink your first root beer after being convinced by scripture, there's nothing in the Bible about root beer. It may bite you. That first sip may bite you uh, as, as your conscience warning you, and yet you are calibrating your conscience to conform to the word of Christ. Does that make sense? And so now we're ready to get into the second half of chapter 4. And um, as we get into these, uh, to the second half, I think it's important just to remind ourselves of the really familiar quote from the 17th century and this is on the FIRE website, it says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. And so just, just to reorient us into that way of thinking that what we're discussing primarily are issues of the conscience, which are secondary, second-tier issues. We're not discussing things like... Uh, uh, the depravity of man, things like the uh, work of Christ, uh, things like um, the righteousness of Christ that saves us. If, if we're debating that, then, then we have other things we need to, to look into, hard issues. But we're not talking about uh, whether or not the righteousness of Christ is what goes before us uh, to the throne, right? We're talking about secondary, second-tier issues, non-essential to salvation, non-salvific issues, and in those issues, liberty. So Christian liberty means that we can have varying conscience uh, issues, uh, different, different uh, opinions of different topics in, in secondary issues, and we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and then in all things, charity. So above all, Christian love for one another is where we need to land. So we're going to cover pages 68, uh, 66. We'll start on page 66. Um, no, I'm sorry. I had my notes wrong. 68 is correct. We're going to start on page 68. Um, and no. The 
the bottom of page 66, I'll get it right. The bottom of page 66, how do you calibrate your conscience? That's where we'll start. We're going to go through page 68. And, uh, and then the second, or the last part of this chapter is really the authors giving examples of specific issues that they have calibrated their consciences on over time as they've grown in their walk with the Lord. And instead of us reading through those, we'll see how time holds out, and we may, we may go through some of those, but I'd really like to use uh, that, that time to open it up for us to share examples as we go through and, and um, look at these specific ways that we calibrate our conscience. Uh, be thinking and just have it rolling around in your mind uh, of ways that as your walk with the Lord has matured um, over time, how maybe things have either been subtracted from your conscience or things have been added to your conscience. And we'll, we'll go over what, those, what that looks like as we go through this, these uh, couple of points here. So just keep that in the back of your mind and we'll, we'll get to that here in a little while. So first of all, there on page 66, uh, how do you calibrate your conscience? Number one, we calibrate our conscience by educating it with the truth. So. Uh, this truth is primarily the Word of God, and secondarily is outside of the Word of God. So uh, always we go to the Word of God first, but there are truths outside the Word of God as well uh, that can inform our conscience and help us to, help us to shape and to uh, uh, calibrate our conscience. Let's look at uh, the top of 67. I want to read this quote by John MacArthur. I thought it was very helpful. The conscience reacts to the convictions of the mind and therefore can be encouraged and sharpened in accordance with God's word. The wise Christian wants to master biblical truth so that the conscience is completely informed and judges right because it is responding to God's word. A regular diet of scripture will strengthen a weak conscience or restrain an overactive one. Conversely, error, human wisdom, and wrong moral influences filling the mind will corrupt or cripple the conscience. I think that's really important. As we interact, you know, every time we interact with someone, it's informing our conscience a little bit. Um, what we watch on television, the books we read, the music we listen to, all of those things are shaping factors in our lives. They're all informing us, and slowly and slightly, they are shaping our, our convictions of our mind, whether we realize it or not. It's just, a, it's just a, a, a slow thing, and that's why staying in the Word is so important to keep us uh, strengthened, uh, both strengthening our weak consciences or restraining an overactive one. Both of those can be uh, reality for us. In other words, the conscience functions like a skylight, not a light bulb. It lets light into the soul. It does not produce its own. Its effectiveness is determined by the amount of pure light we expose it to and by how clean we keep it. Cover it or put it in total darkness and it ceases to function. That's why the Apostle Paul spoke of uh, a clear conscience in 1 Timothy 3.9. That's in the qualifications for a deacon. Um, they must hold the mystery of, a faith, of the faith with a clear conscience and warned against anything that would defile or muddy the conscience. 1 Corinthians 8.7 uh, that's, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through their former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And then Titus 1.15, to the pure, all things are pure, uh, to the, uh, uh, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So... Uh, Continuing on there in the next paragraph, when we say you need to calibrate your conscience by informing your conscience with truth, we primarily mean the truth of the Bible. But it's not solely the truth that appears in the Bible. Sometimes our conscience is mistaken because we've applied biblical principles the wrong way due to being misinformed about truth outside the Bible. And then he gives some examples there, for instance, about birth control that may have abortive uh, 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 components to them. And so we want to uh, take into account truth in both two spheres, both, both of two spheres, one inside the Bible and one outside the Bible. At the top of page 68, uh, that's very important as well, that this education is not something you do in a vacuum um, or all alone. So this is why the local church is so important. It's vital. 
uh, as, as we uh, grow together um, as, as saints, our brothers and sisters help us to define uh, biblical principles and help us to shape our consciences uh, just by association, um, just by being with each other in community. Uh, it's, it's very important. Godly church leaders uh, also uh, help discern the difference between issues of right and wrong and issues of preference or scruple. So all these things, they're, they're nuanced. A lot, of, a lot of Christian life is nuanced uh, when, when we get into uh, secondary and third tier issues. And that's why, number two, it's due process. It takes due process. It takes time to calibrate your conscience. Uh, this uh, is usually something that does not happen overnight. Uh, would someone look at uh, Acts 10, 9, and 16 and, and read that for us? Acts 10, 9 through 16. All right, Ben. Okay, so in this example of, of uh, the vision of Peter, obviously this was God uh, telling Peter that he needed to recalibrate his conscience. And, and Peter did recalibrate his conscience, or calibrate his conscience, rather, uh, almost instantly. Uh, it, was, it was kind of an on-the-fly thing. That doesn't usually happen for us, where it, it can, where we're reading the word and something just strikes us. And we realize we've been seeing something the wrong way. Real, uh, our conscience has been wrongly calibrated. But generally, that's not our, our experience, is it? As we grow, usually it's over time, things come more clear to us uh, in more of a, of a slow process. And, and it takes wisdom. Um, but even in Peter's case, even though this was a, a quick change, God directly speaking to him and giving him... Uh, the, the information he needed to recalibrate on the fly, so to speak. Uh, even Peter's conscience needed to be recalibrated. Let's look at Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Would someone read that for us? Galatians 2, 11 through 14. Okay, Dool, go ahead. Okay, so what happened? Peter, somewhere along the line, needed to have his, uh, his conscience recalibrated, right? Uh, he had forgotten. His conscience had, had changed, had slipped back uh, to uh, opposing the, the Gentile believers again, and this is why Paul needed to withstand him to his face. Uh, he he uh, had to correct him sharply. Uh, and so that is, that's a, a reminder to us as well. So even though we can calibrate our conscience, it's an ongoing process. The gospel changes us over time. It's sanctification. It's, it's, it's walking out the truth that we're uh, learning and growing in. And so it's a very practical thing. And this is part of becoming more like Christ. This is a, a, a walking like Jesus uh, kind of issue. It takes the Bible, it takes prayer, and it takes community. Uh, uh, relying on one another for, uh, for wisdom. Are there any thoughts that anyone has up to this point or any questions?
Okay, so uh, let's move on then to examples. Uh, second half there, page 68, the lower, lower section. Examples that illustrate how you might calibrate your conscience. So uh, they're going to give several uh, examples of, of their own uh, consciences and their own, their own calibration issues that they've dealt with over time and how they've both subtracted and added to. Look at the bottom of page 69 and we'll, we'll discuss those two terms, what it means to add to your conscience and what it means to subtract from your conscience. So those two, those two categories, for example, if your scale reads 115 pounds when it should say 120 pounds, then you need to calibrate the scale by adding five pounds, right? And then likewise, if it's reading too high, then you'll need to subtract five pounds. Um, so those basic categories are how we can think about our conscience when we're either adding information to it, we're adding a rule, if you will, to it, or maybe we're subtracting a rule. Uh, it's something that we have had been convicted of prior in our walk with Christ, but over time we see that it's not in Scripture. Um, generally, in my experience, and I, he mentions it, uh, they mention it here at the bottom of page 69, when a rule gets subtracted, from your conscience, generally something replaces it. Another rule replaces it. So it's kind of a subtraction addition kind of thing, but it's, it's just calibrating our consciences in to more closely reflect the perfect rule of Christ. So just thinking in those two categories, um, I want to open it up. Let's, let's take examples of subtracting from your conscience. So thinking in terms of things that you were convinced were wrong early in your walk with Christ, and then somewhere along the way, through the study of your study of the Word, uh, through interacting with other believers, you became convinced that that was a rule you needed to let go of uh, in order to be more like Christ. Does anyone have an example they'd like to share with us? Mr. Allen. great example. Joel. Good. So one area that I, I thought of when I was thinking over this for my personal, uh, personal growth over the years early on in my walk with Christ, music uh, was something that really uh, was important to me. I, I didn't see how any secular music outside of, of gospel, uh, of, of Christian genre music, uh, could possibly have a place in a Christian's life, not only for my own, but for anyone else. When I was writing with any friends that were listening to anything other than Christian, uh, I was like, who are these people? And, you know, they're, they're, they can't be real Christians or as strong of a Christian as me. Uh, 
it was immaturity. As I grew in my walk with Christ, I realized there's really nothing in Scripture that, that casts out any particular genre of music, right? However, another conviction replaced that one. So instead of looking at it in terms of genre, it's really in terms of what the music content has. And so Philippians 4.8 became kind of my guiding, uh, guiding passage in what I listened to. So that's just one area where, you know, and, and that's why I say it kind of goes hand in hand a lot of times. There's an adding and there's a subtracting that goes on in, in replacing a former conviction that was maybe wrong. But, uh, but it's not that I have no convictions about music today. It's that it's more honed in to scripture. Uh, and obviously, I still have a long ways to go in that, in growing. But that's, that's where I am today. Are there any other examples that you have of subtracting over time from your conscience? Hypothetically speaking. lists are long. Right. Anyone else that wants to share? Caleb.
I, yeah, I think, um, I don't think it's ever wrong to share the gospel. So you're never, never in the wrong to share the gospel, um, uh, what Jesus was referring to in that, casting your pearls before swine, wasn't, for sure wasn't the first time you're sharing your uh, testimony with somebody. So, you know, never hold back from, from sharing your gospel testimony with an unsaved friend. Um, that being said, associations are important as well. And so if you feel like friends are drawing you away from Christ and, you know, being uh, a detriment to your own walk with the Lord, then it's probably not the best thing to be close friends with them. Uh, find uh, associations and friends that spur you on to holiness. At the same time, sharing the gospel with uh, those who don't know Christ. Ben. good example. Mr. Ray? That's a good example of truth outside the Bible uh, and truth in the Word. So uh, the, the truth is that you can carry a library on a computer, on your phone. Um, that's, that's truth outside the Bible that helps to inform our consciences. So. Yeah, Morgan. All right, so let's, uh, let's shift gears then a little bit and think of ways and examples of adding to our conscience over time. So now, instead of thinking of things that we've subtracted, think of things that you were not bothered by in your early walk with Christ, but over time, as you've grown in your walk with Christ, you've been convinced by the Word 
and by your association with other believers that these things need to be a rule in your life for you personally and that you maybe need to avoid them or do them depending on what it, what it may be. So this is a rule that you added for yourself uh, to make you more like Christ. So are any examples coming to your mind along those lines? history. So I'll just share. Yeah, go ahead, Philip. Yeah, I think uh, since you brought that up, there's actually one example that he gives in here, um, and let me see if I can find it because I, I didn't have that in my notes, but um, I thought that it was very helpful. Uh, okay, this is at the bottom of page 74 where he's discussing tattoos. This is one example that they give uh, where they subtracted. It was actually Andy uh, writing this por this portion, but... Um, uh, he subtracted uh, tattoos from his conscience as a right or wrong, morally right or wrong issue for him. And uh, because he, he uh, it's again, it's going back to the text in Leviticus 19.28, um, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. That's obviously part of uh, uh, Moses's uh, old covenant law, the moral, uh, the, the uh, ceremonial law that we don't follow today. Um, 
so we have to think through carefully what that text means. But I like what he said because of, of how you brought up alcohol, Philip, and how we can't always tell from the outside why someone may or may not be uh, uh, partaking. Uh, they may be, appear to be a teetotaler. If you look down at the bottom there, uh, well, about halfway down, so their reason for not getting a tattoo uh, is that it could make them less missional. So notice how they took it out of their moral uh, conscience issue and they put it into uh, a non-issue. However, they have the freedom to get a tattoo or to not get a tattoo. And the reason they choose not to get a tattoo is because of a missional view. So uh, they look, uh, look down at the bottom of that paragraph. It says, dear Christian friends of ours have tattoos and we're not judgmental toward them. Uh, in fact, they know of a Christian in California who uses his scripture tattoos as opportunities for witness. He's a walking gospel billboard. Uh, so in the context that that particular Christian is in, tattoos work for him to spread the gospel. He's using them for a purpose. However, the authors are saying in order to keep them open to missional opportunities that they may not be aware of yet, going to other parts of the world where tattoos may be seen locally as uh, satanic or cultic or, or uh, you know, something opposed to the message of the gospel in order to not limit themselves, they choose not to get tattoos. The point that he's making or that I'd like to really draw out here is the bottom of page 74. Their position, it says, our position on tattoos illustrates that someone can have a strong, free conscience on a particular issue and yet choose to act in a way that is externally indistinguishable from someone with a weaker stricter conscience. And so it says to think of two groups of believers. One group is theologically correct that it is morally acceptable to have tattoos. That's a correct theological understanding of scripture. The, uh, and so the other group is theologically incorrect in believing that it is inherently sinful to have a tattoo. To have a tattoo in their minds would keep you disbarred from heaven. Okay. Yet both groups choose not to get tattoos. Functionally, they act the same in the matter, but what undergirds their decision is significantly different. So it's, it goes back to in the Christian life, it's always a matter of why, more than a matter of what, right? So we don't know, uh, to your point, you know, how do you press somebody? I think it's unwise on secondary issues like this to press people into our view uh, because we don't even know exactly their underlying reasoning. Does that make sense? as to why they're coming to the position of, of, in that case, not drink alcohol, or in this case, not to have a tattoo. Mr. Richard. Right, yeah, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Mr. Paul. We don't want to be a stumbling block to another believer. 
Joel. Tyler, do you have your hand up earlier? I think also, and we're going to get into this in the next chapter, uh, if you haven't read this already, I really encourage everyone to go ahead and read chapter uh, 5 in preparation for, uh, for next week and the following two Sundays we're actually going to be in this chapter. But uh, uh, in, in relating to other people that have differing issues of conscience, and I'm just going to, not to get ahead of ourselves, but just look at page 94 um, when you get a chance, and the, the chart there that he's got of strong conscience and weak conscience. We often tend to think of people with a weaker conscience uh, that maybe don't have the freedom to do something that we're comfortable doing or, or whatever as being less mature or maybe less pleasing to the Lord. But you'll see there how he breaks that out. Actually, strong consciences can be displeasing to the Lord as well. Uh, you can go so far in the strong direction that you actually move into heresy. And then you can go so far in the weak direction that you actually move into heresy. So there's, there's a middle ground there uh, that we need to be striving for. In, and that really, that middle ground is flexible. So just be thinking over those, uh, those categories and studying that in preparation for the coming Sundays as we look into more into how to relate to our brothers and sisters who differ uh, from us on second tier, second tier and third tier issues. Um, so... Uh, are there any other any other examples that you'd like to share? Yeah, Cassie. Mm. 
So uh, just one more example I'll share with, uh, of, of adding. This is from my personal, um, personal experience, and then we'll, we'll move on. We're, well, we're, moving, well, we're running out of time. Um, actually, I'm going to omit my example because we're so short on time. I didn't realize we had less than, less than 10 minutes. So just to wrap this up, let's, uh, let's go ahead and look at pages 81 and 82. Um, I do want to share this before we close. Um, on page 82, uh, well, starting on the bottom of 81, uh, he mentions Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I thought this was just a good example uh, to share with us that we should not be too dogmatic in our convictions. Uh, we need to realize with humility that we have room to grow and there are areas that we don't see and, uh, and the Lord may in his kindness reveal those areas to us as we grow. Uh, so in March 20, uh, 1924, when Martin Lloyd-Jones was 24 years old, he wrote this statement and, and uh, we're pretty sure that he later regretted some of the things he said here. But let's just read what his convictions were, his strongly held beliefs were at this point in his life. I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even gaudily colored socks, rings, wristwatches, spats, shoes instead of boots, or who carries a cane in his hand. The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but it has been a real curse to humanity. If I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day or with one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter because a man's soul is more important than his skin. I had a problem with that, with that one. <laughs> when, when I enter a house and find that they have a wireless apparatus, such as a radio, I know at once that something is wrong. Your five valve sets may do wonders. They may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, they will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. So, I mean, the, it, we can get a chuckle out of, out, of his, uh, out of his words today as we look back and we have the benefit of, of history. Uh, but this, they say there halfway through the second paragraph, this story illustrates why you should avoid being dogmatic about all your convictions. Sometimes our convictions are based on a misinformed conscience that we just need to calibrate. So, uh, are there any final thoughts before we bring this to a close? All right, uh, Mr. Allen, would you pray for us?